From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. The very first flight, you're only 10 feet above the bottom of the hill. So you, you jump or you step off the hill and you don't come down. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect and curate and bring you the best audio stories available worldwide. We search high and low, near and far, on the internet, the airwaves, podcasts, up into the atmosphere and down into the ground. And then we deliver the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. My name is Dev, have thou heard of me? You don't want another grave digger. And yeah, fair lady, must come with me. Because when he's in your life, something awful's happened. Every once in a while here on ReSound, we break from our usual format to bring you the work of one producer who we really love. Today, that producer is the singular Kathy Fitzgerald. Kathy, who now lives in a small village northwest of London, grew up living between Essex and New Zealand. She came to radio late in the game and worked in lots of other fields, magazines, charities, human resources, and then received a PhD in Dickens. Not exactly a mainstream path towards a career, but then again, her work is anything but mainstream. It's unusual, nonlinear, a bit ethereal, and always delightful. Today on ReSound, stories about skylarking, grave digging, and a museum in Zagreb that displays the detritus of doomed love affairs. You are in for a treat. Stay with us. Our first Kathy Fitzgerald piece is an airy daydream about looking up into the endless blue sky and what that can do for your soul. With cameos from levitating yogis, Labradors with wings, and freewheeling angels, this story is a quintessential example of Kathy at her best. The wind is picking up. Close your eyes and catch a ride. When you first go into a cloud, you don't really feel it particularly, but if you spend a few minutes in there, it is damp and your all your kit starts to get a bit wet and have water starting to run down the lines a little bit and if you go higher and higher then things can start freezing up as well you get completely wrapped in the grayness the moisture of the cloud and you're you have an altimeter that's bleeping and it's taking you up and you think oh my god it's going to take me up and up and up and up forever please close your eyes Hold on to I am. And watch your breathing. There's a nervousness. Your brain can't help but think, will I ever come out of this cloud? And then after a while, you'll pop out the edge and you'll be a thousand or two thousand feet above the bottom of the cloud and it's like this cliff of the purest white. If you come out on the sunny side of the cloud, suddenly this blast of sun comes into your face and that, I must have done that 50 or 100 times, but it's still the most exhilarating thing I think that ever happens in my life. (laughs) 
you can't see the earth, you can't see anything else, everything's just blue and you're just hanging there under a, under a bit of cloth and string. I think you need the contrast. I think you've always got to come down at some point. and so they put three people in a two-man cell and you get a little television and a kettle double bunk there a single bed there toilet there wash hand basin there cell window in front of you uh, the view well basically you look well, it depends which, which, which wing you're on but our view was over the exercise yard to beyond that tower block in the distance. So it's the same? Oh, it doesn't change, apart from the weather. So how big is the window, roughly? It's not big. And, you know, they come in every now and again to test the bars. Make sure you're not chipping them out. <laughs> I tell you what is nice about it, seeing birds, all right, they're only pigeons, but seeing them fly, <laughs> they're free. I was getting a wee bit, I'd like to get out of here now. <laughs> but I just love the fact that they're all going, this is my bit. <laughs> you stay up, I, this is my bit, my bit of the sky. Robins, tough little bastards there. The Arena Chapel, Padua, 1305-ish. Giotto perches on a ladder, scratches his nose with a painty finger and adds a dab of blue to the ultramarine sky that curves over his head, winks at the tiny pink-clothed angel who flies on the wall alongside. 600 or so years later, Marcel Proust visits. The frescoes are so blue he thinks the sky outside has snuck into the shady chapel along with him for a breather from the sun. Giotto's flying angels look so real they must exist. He likes the way they loop the loop. 
the very first flight you're only 10 feet above the bottom of the hill so you you literally your feet leave the ground for two or three seconds but it's amazing i remember i learned with my wife and she's just screaming with joy you jump or you step off the hill and you don't come down you're watching mainly for birds to start flying around somewhere near the hill and if they're flapping that's no good so it means there's no lift if they're not flapping and they're going around in circles you know that they're in a thermal so you have to think hmm can i get to that bird you have a variometer which bleeps according to how fast you're going up so that will start going beep 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 and when you first hear these variometers you think god what a horrible noise that's going to really really spoil the whole purity and the sensation of flight but actually pretty quickly you um, sort of Pavlovian response to it being a, a, a good sound in that it means you're going up. On the very best days, the, the days when it's e easiest, the sky is a checkerboard of, of little fluffy clouds and you can fly from one to the next and so the clouds are like stepping stones across the sky. Allow your thinking mind to be dissolved. Feel the pulsation of life, the tingling sensation between your skin and atmosphere. You can enjoy it, but you cannot describe it. The moment you describe one form, it changes into another. You get up in the morning when they tell you to. You look out and if it's raining, you know you're not even going to get in the yard because the screws don't like getting wet. Whether we get wet or not, it doesn't matter. But I'd rather get wet. I'd rather get out. That's why I used to go to... First of all, on the Sunday morning, I, I was a Roman Catholic. Then I was a Salvationist. Then I went to the Church of England. The Muslims wouldn't let me into it. But only to get out of your cell. Sing a few songs. Meet different people. Come on. So you'd look out and you'd think, oh, we're not going you know, to get exercise today. And you look out and it's a nice day. If it's blue sky, you're going to get walking. wonderful morning such a sky you never to see oh we'll tie it up with a ribbon and put it in a box for me so i can see it at my leisure whenever things go wrong and i will keep it as a treasure to last my whole life long wonderful feeling I'm so high I swear I could fly me oh my I don't want to lose it so what am I to do to keep the sky so blue there must be someone who will buy who will buy airplanes flying overhead 
we'd stand and wonder, I wonder where they are going, you know. And quite a lot of guys were from Jamaica. And I think it's going to Jamaica. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure that's good. <laughs> Very few of them are going to Scotland. Halfway up Mont Blanc, 1787. Horace Benedict de Saussure sends an apple core flying into the mountain void and considers the alpine sky. He takes up his newly invented cyanometer. Which blue is this, he wonders, comparing the colour of the sky against the tiny squares of paper he's dyed in every shade of Prussian blue. One day soon he'll discover a formula to create sky in a bottle, any shade at your request. Copper sulphate, ammonia, and H2O. I've flown a lot in India as well, and there we fly with these huge things called the Himalayan griffin vultures, and they're enormous. A friend of mine described them as Labradors with wings. But they will come very close, and right next to you or they'll fly just behind the paraglider. I think they get a slight kind of advantage, a bit like riding a bicycle in the slipstream of a bus. Flying in, in mountains is very different from flying in the flatlands of England because then you do live in the world of flight in that you can take off from a mountain, fly around for a few hours, cover lots of ground, you know, on a good day of 100 kilometers or more, and then come the end of the day, three or four o'clock in the afternoon, four or five o'clock, you start looking around for a suitable place to land that's high up so that you'll be able to launch from it again the next day. And also you, know, you want a nice place to camp and so forth. So you can carry enough stuff in your harness you know, to look after yourself, you carry a tent or a sleeping bag and food. And, and then you land somewhere and you camp out for the night. And then the next morning, come 11 or 12, and the first thermals start going in, the first birds start flying around, you can take off and, and do it again. Don't imagine anything. It is tremendous enough without imagination. fly the most is in autumn when the shepherds are coming down from the high pastures you know they're preparing to go back to the plains for the winter that's what I'll be looking for generally when I'm flying around thinking right where we're going to stop for the night if I can see a shepherd camp nearby that's great because not only are they good company they've got amazing stories to tell about their life in the mountains but also you'll get some milk to put in your tea you know goat's milk but it's, it's pretty tasty they like this strange bird man who flies in they like having guests and someone to talk to because they've been pretty lonely for the previous six months. Reading Jail, 1st of April, 1897. Oscar Wilde sits in his cell. Greek and Roman poets make his headache, but he has Dante for company, a 
and just now he's writing a letter. Looks at the view and notices the black trees beyond the prison walls are breaking into shrill green buds. The cell walls echo back to him one word, fool. He'd laugh, but it's against the rules. Have you seen the picture of his cell? No, show me. His, his view. So Oscar, Oscar Wilde's Yeah, view. but it, I got it copied here and I didn't do it very well. Because they're, I mean, they're going to pull down um, Reading Jail. Are they? Yeah. It's pretty much falling down as it is. Would you read? He walked amongst the trial men in a suit of shabby grey. A cricket cap was on his head and his step seemed light and gay. But I never saw a man who looked so wistfully at the day. I never saw a man who looked with such a wistful eye upon that little tent of blue which prisoners call the sky and at every drifting cloud that went with sails of silver by. I walked with other souls in pain within another ring and was wondering what that man had done, a great or little thing, and a voice behind me whispered low, that fella's gonna swing. That was an excerpt of Skylarking, produced by Kathy Fitzgerald with sound design by Joe Atchison for BBC Radio 3. Hello. Kathy Fitzgerald. Kathy joined us recently to talk about her work. Hello, I'm just pressing Hi. record. Her style. <laughs> How you doing? And her inspirations. And she explained that Skylarking had an unusually long incubation period. Well, I, I'd actually been thinking about that for, I think, almost as long as I've been in radio um, because I just started out with a feeling that something happens to me when I lie on the grass and I look at the sky. Something happens to me physically in my body. I'm a different person as a result. And I thought, well, I'd kind of like to make something that captures that sense of expansion. And I started thinking, OK, so I should talk to experts and I should line up artists and authors and they should tell me, you know, tell me why they look like looking at the sky. And then I realised, OK, well, actually what I just need to do is, you know, talk to a couple of folks who like looking at the sky and have a particular relationship with it. So one is the prisoner um, with his tiny little room talking to his pigeons on the, um, on the bars. And then the other is the paraglider who is completely immersed in this sort of wonderful world of airy nothingness for days at a time. Yeah, I was going to say that guy makes me want to learn how to hang glide. Yeah, I chickened out on that because he did offer, I was, originally I thought I would go paragliding and I'd actually record it up there with him. Um, but I actually get terrible kind of air sickness. I thought this really isn't going to work if I'm kind of up there hurling while thinking about what question to ask next. So it's not really terribly romantic. That was producer Kathy Fitzgerald talking about her story, Skylarking. Coming up after the break, we learn how to dig a grave and take a journey to Zagreb to visit a museum of items cast off after breakups. Plus, more from producer Kathy Fitzgerald. Stay with us.
You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to the work of the very talented producer, Kathy Fitzgerald. In just a minute, we're going to hear her story, How to Dig a Grave. Kathy spent time doing a variety of things before breaking into radio production, including four years studying the work of Charles Dickens, ending up with a PhD. So that's Dr. Fitzgerald to you. And Kathy said those years in the library, inhabiting the worlds Dickens created, had a big influence on her approach to her work. I learned strangeness from Dickens, I think. I lived in Dickens' books for four years, and so that's four years of essentially inhabiting this incredibly bizarre universe that's never quite, you're never quite sure if you're awake, you're never quite sure if you're dreaming, you have these larger-than-life characters um, who sort of come at you out of the London gloom, you know, it's intensely, intensely atmospheric, and there is, I think, a real mental pleasure in that uncertainty and that sort of frisson of... um, the, the strangeness of it. And now, here's that somewhat Dickensian story called How to Dig a Grave. When I think of a grave digger, I see an old English churchyard in the twilight. Green leaf and grey stone, full of eerie life. A man digging made of mud and yew tree. Hamlet and Horatio come into the churchyard. A grotesque passing time till Hamlet arrives to say his lines. Had this fellow no feeling of his business? He sings in grave-making. Custom has made it in him a property of easiness. Tis even so. The gravedigger sees through us, through our passions and vanities to the bones beneath. And he sings. As if never that skull had a tongue in it and could sing once. Why do we conjure such a ghoulish image? I meet Julie Rugg, an academic with an interest in things grave and wormy, in York Cemetery. We follow winding paths between Victorian angels to a shady bench under the trees. How would she imagine a grave digger from central casting? Picture from the archers or something, you know, the cloth cap on and elbow on a spade, chewing <laughs> on a bit of straw and going on about the old days. But you don't, he's not ghostly to you because for me, I yeah. think I imagined him almost growing out of the graveyard. You know, somehow he belongs here in a way we don't. I suppose. I'm just too used to it to have these fanciful notions because mm. it's all too much of a practicality for me, I think. What assumptions do you think I'm bringing to it that I might want to shed? Uh, the romance of the notion and the imageries that are attached to sort of certain types of job because they're death-related. I think a lot of people, they hide their unease about mortality and the people who deal with mortality by giving this work some kind of image that displaces them because actually it's an easier thing to be dealing with than the fact that this person will come into your life. You don't want him in your life, because when he's in your life, something awful's happened. It's better to put him over there, and he can be creepy over there than be a friend. Be a real person up close. You don't want another grave digger. As I roved out one day, one day I met an aged man by the way 
His head was bowed and his beard was grey. His clothing made of cold earth and clay. I says, old man, what man are you? And what country do you belong to? My name is Death, have thou heard of me? And ye fair lady must come with me. Long, long ago, we dug the graves. When a loved one died, we washed their body, kept them company through the night. We lifted the soil. We stood in the earth. We made a safe, dark home for their bones. And then one day, we got a man to do it. And over time, we decided he was gruesome and strange. As Julie put it, not someone we wanted to know. But I do want to know the gravedigger. Now, when I hope death isn't on my shoulder or the shoulder of anyone I love. I think he understands things the rest of us forgot a long time ago. Things, now I'm in the middle of my life, it might be helpful to know. Which is why today I'm going to learn how to dig a grave. The Institute of Cemetery and Crematorium Management Code of Safe Working Practice for Cemeteries. The first thing is, is for the grave digger is to make absolutely sure he's just about to, to dig the, the correct grave. It would be an absolute disaster if that sort of mistake happened. The consequences are quite serious. Check, check and check again. I'm in Kilmarnock Cemetery on a drich foggy morning. It's a big place. Grand old tombs at one end, weathered and bare. This month's burials at the other, the turf raw and decked in flowers. I wander between the graves and notice the latest fashion in headstones is for photos of the dead. And in this grey town south of Glasgow, many of the pictures show smiling young men. This is Stevie Beard's domain. He pulls up beside me in his truck on a narrow track between the rows of graves, or as they're called here in Scotland, Layers. He's been a grave digger for 25 years, and our first conversation is creepy enough for Hamlet. Morning. Hello. We're recording the crows. The crows go along and pick at the flowers at the vases. Look, there's one there doing the exact same. They got them down the road, see the two of them? Yeah. They're looking for snails, slugs, anything at all. They're no shy. <laughs> Used to get that at Phoenix Cemetery, they sat either side of the entrance, and that was your reception in the morning. Was a couple of crows waiting for you, <coughs> counting your days down. Uh. Hello. Stevie lopes along in a high vis jacket, mobile in one hand, packet of ciggies in the other. He runs a team of nine men. They do total maintenance, he says. Dig graves, cut the grass prune trees. They're responsible for half a dozen cemeteries in the area. Burials this morning, Coomores and Coomarnock Cemetery. Uh, Gordon and Young Stewart will be digging foundations, doing a bit of grass cutting. Peter's doing a bit of strimming round about. Other than that, Brian were just jogging away. Stevie and his friend Bobby, another digger with decades of experience, are going to teach me how to reopen a grave. 
In this part of the country, burial plots are dug deep enough to hold three full-size coffins, one above the other, and up to six cremation caskets. Each time a family member is added, the lair has to be re-excavated, down to within inches of the old coffins. That's what we're doing today, ahead of the burial tomorrow. Step two is getting ready to accurately mark the area to be excavated within that grave space, making sure all of the equipment, tools, uh, everything that's needed is close at hand, remove the turf and the grave digger's then ready to start. Did you see the way I was doing that, Cathy? Don't take big chunks of it. <laughs> take it nice and easy. And you just work backwards along the grave, what sort of what about? What part Three quarters of a foot at a time. Aye. And that keeps the, the edges square as well for going down. Yeah. Okay, we go at that, Mrs. We've got to go. Aye. Right, little bit. Little bit. Very little bit. That's a very little bit, <laughs> aye. I'm starting small to get the hang of it. Aye. Well, you need to eat more porridge than that in the moment. <laughs> We store our good soil, our topsoil, for levelling up graves. We keep a hold of the good stuff. Like hen's teeth. <laughs> so what kind of soil are we down to now? This has come down into the subsoil. You notice the colour change of the soil. It's sort of lighter brown. A lighter brown, aye. As the spoil heap rises, I'm aware I'm trying to ignore the brutal nakedness of this hole in the ground. There are few things more inescapably real than an empty grave, with its damp air and its odour of the subterranean. Charles Cowling, author of The Good Funeral Guide. The thing about burial is that it's, it's so elemental. The starkness of a hole in the ground is... God, it's, it's, um, it's the extreme dissonance. A funeral service will be one where the dead person is lapped in love and much care will have gone into the washing and dressing of their body and people will have been to visit that dead person and it's all beautifully done on the day with big shiny cars and ceremonially clad undertaker and so on. And we take them down to a hole in the ground. There's a huge contrast and of course it may well be raining. I mean, most people die in February who wouldn't. So it's shiveringly cold, and we're going to put our loved person into this wet and surprisingly deep hole. It's the great contrast, isn't it? And the fact that it's earth. It's earth, it's freshly dug earth. Rates of burial have declined over the decades. Interment is still the preferred option for Jewish and Muslim families. But even so, three out of four people in the UK are cremated these days. It tends to be cheaper, and has gained favour since the Catholic Church lifted its prohibition. But if burial is rare, hand-digging a grave is even rarer in this age of mini-diggers. It's back-breaking work, and can take all day, or longer if the ground's full of stones. And it's a two-person job, one to dig, one to watch the sides don't cave in, and to take away the spoil. On the upside, it's surprisingly companionable. A good place to talk. Often people who work with death in cultures all around the world 
tend, there tends to be a certain amount of stigma. You know, you've got stuff under the fingernails that people are a bit worried about. Is that something you've ever experienced? People will ask us, are you bought for rings and jewellery and all that? Sorry, no. <laughs> like you're some kind of modern day Birkin Ah, as if you're a Birkin here. And, uh, <laughs> Did they really say that? What, down the aye. Oh, aye. Okay, you got all the conversations. People just don't know. They just assume we say that that's what's happened. Do you take the body out and get the coffin back to the undertaker? And ask, why would it? No. God, why would they do that? Want to? Aye. For goodness sake. Do kids get scared of you? But they look at you as if you've got horns in your head. When, once they find out what you do for a living, People are I, always interested when you say you're a grave digger. Ah, yeah, he's got always somebody wants to know something. Always. A lady walked the churchyard round and saw a corpse lay on the ground, and from its mouth and to its chin, the worms crept out, the worms crept in. The lady to the sexton said, Shall I be so when I am dead? Oh, yes, oh, yes, the man replied. She gave a gulp, and then she died. A lot of these suspicions about the gravedigger date back to the Victorians. The dead didn't rest quite so peacefully then. Graveyards reimagined all a creep with resurrection men and body snatchers, glowing green corpse lights, and poisonous bodily emanations known as miasma. And even more offensive to genteel sensibilities was the intimacy with which bodies might mingle in the overcrowded ground. Julie Rugg. A common grave, if you didn't have as much money, you would just be buried in a grave with other people who weren't always necessarily related. And those are the graves, really very deep, and where you're very, very skilled when it comes to grave digging. How, how deep? 20 feet, you know, really long way down. And I was talking to a cemetery manager who used to be a grave digger, and he said, when you're at the bottom and you looked up, the sky was like a star. It was that far away. You'd see this little spot of light and that was, the, that was the sky because you were that deep in the ground. So you can imagine just how unnerving it must have been. It was during the 19th century that grave digging first became a full-time job. It attended to be the preserve of farm workers. In one story, a sexton would stick his head round the pub door to offer pints in exchange for a grave dug. But in the 19th century, death, in cities anyway, became an industrial affair. The big London burial boards employed teams of grave diggers and kept them busy. The reports of the time sort of indicate that you had to be pretty drunk to be a grave digger. Pretty drunk? Pretty drunk, because it was a horrific job. I mean, not to, to be too precious about it, they were really digging through the putrefying remains of earlier burials to get new burials in. I mean, Dickens talks about this in Bleak House, that was stamping on the bodies to get, to get them in, and literally that's what they were doing. And there are lots of reports of disarticulated remains being scattered around the churchyard, and the smell, just the smell being impossible. People in the surrounding houses saying, you know, in the summertime, you just have to move away. And these are people living nearby, not people working 
in the churchyard. So you can imagine, you know, a few tots of whiskies kind of to get you through the day. It's kind of understandable, really. These days, bodies mostly stay where they've been put. Exhumations are a terrible but rare part of the job and take place discreetly, out of hours and under canvas. Ah, uh, you have to have a strong stomach. Mm-hmm. When you get in about the nitty-gritty, you're seeing things that you ain't never normally going to see. In a way, you <laughs> see things to save the rest of us from having to see them. Aye, 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 I know. So we've specialised it all watch off a into your film, area. You see, it doesn't look like that at all. That's all that rubbish. Aye, <laughs> that's, that's a movie. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Oh, no. So do they look a bit tame, horror films, now? Yes. Oh, aye. aye. That's all for the screen. Old Roger is dead and he lies in his grave, lies in his grave, lies in his grave. Old Roger is dead and he lies in his grave. Hey, I over. They planted an apple tree over his head, over his head, over his head. They planted an apple tree over his head. Hey, I over. You can see the original cut of the grave on the left-hand side there. Yeah, yeah, the original. The original shape of the grave, the original cut. How much do you think we are above the original coffin here? Inches. Inches? Aye. That was an excerpt of How to Dig a Grave, produced by Kathy Fitzgerald. Kathy said that despite the eeriness of graves and the endless fascination with the dead, digging a grave is just no big deal once you actually start moving dirt. When you're actually there, um, you know, working in a grave, actually the whole thing makes so much more sense and is so much less scary um, than you would ever expect. Did you? Did it make you think anything about um, what you're going to want after you die? Well, they talk about the grave digger as a man who puts you to sleep, you know, who puts you to bed, who tucks you in. And that sort of idea of, um, you know, I suppose going to sleep, going to sleep under the sod. You know, I know it's absurdly romantic, but there's something sort of peaceful and calm. It's a full, it's a proper full stop to the sentence. In our next piece, Kathy Fitzgerald wanted to produce a, quote, cheery story about breaking up. She was fed up with the idea that dating is just a continuous revolving door, entering in one side, going round and round, getting tossed out, and then heading right back in. So in this story about a museum of items left behind in the wake of romantic splits, she wanted to embrace the weariness, but not the gloom. Here's The Cabinet of Animosities. Zagreb, Croatia. I'm dodging the trams and the rain. No one to talk to, so I'm talking to you. We're going to start at the end. After the first row, the silence, the very last kiss. We're going to start at the moment. You felt your heart break. Because this is a story about what happens next, about the things and the people that are left behind. I'm taking a funicular ride to the upper town, the oldest part of Zagreb. 
I'm visiting a place I know. This is it. Dali želite audio guide? Welcome to the Museum of Broken Relationships. Galleries are usually full of the oldest and the best. But the Museum of Broken Relationships collects banal, everyday things. An old iron, a broken watch, a mobile phone. The objects come from all around the world, donated anonymously by people at the end of love affairs. Tired old gifts and shared belongings that aren't wanted anymore, or wanted too much. You've chosen the English language option. I love it here. Echoey, whitewashed rooms. The exhibits glowing on illuminated shelves as if they're floating. I've been recording the museum stories for a while now, talking to the donors of the objects and the people who work here and visit. It's usually busier, but it's quiet today. Just you, me. You can adjust the volume at any time by turning the knob marked volume. And when you hear this noise, it's time to move on. And him, the audio guide man. He's not so bad. Come on, we'll show you around. Here's the first object on our tour. A $50 bill issued by the Bank of Jamaica. Its anonymous donor tells its story. It's green and scrumpled and passed through many hands. Rather used, rather dirty. It was a mark of what I'd been through. That object contained all the pain. Throwing it away would be discarding what happened to me. Keeping it would be holding on to it. And I hadn't told anyone else. My mother doesn't know. No one knows other than me and him. Do you remember the first moment that you saw him? Yes. He was leaning against a tree, actually, smoking a cigarette and uh, chatting to his mate in what sounded like very broad patois. Dreadlocks down to his knees, combats, bright yellow t-shirt. Very colourful, very dramatic. What was his opening line? Uh, it was so cheesy. It was a hello pretty girl. I think you're very beautiful. Constantly stroking my back or my hair. Saying what beautiful hair you've got. When you haven't had that for a very, very long time, it was flattering. And I suppose he was pressing the buttons, wasn't he? And I was vulnerable. The museum was founded by two Zagreb-based friends, Elinka Vistica and Giles and Grubisic. They had the idea in the middle of a painful breakup from each other. The thing was how to preserve at least one part of the beautiful things that were not just a part of your life, but it becomes a part of your body, of your brain, whatever, and you can not just remove it surgically. And that conversation one night resulted in, wouldn't it be great to have a place where you could store the part of your life that is not allowed to <laughs> exist anymore? Something like a museum. The way we decided to display objects without any glass covering is to have you relate to the object much easier. There was supposed to be here at your hand's reach. Is it a museum of unhappy endings? 
if our notion of love is of something that's uh, everlasting and like uh, fairy tales, then yeah, it's a museum of unhappy endings. But for me, most of these objects still talk of great love. It's just because of this temporary end part, you feel something different from what you felt before. It's not love, it's rage, it's anger. And you have this natural need to destroy everything. For me, it's a love museum. He kept phoning me, I think he phoned me every day. What are you doing tonight, baby? What are you doing today, baby? You know, it's this, this kind of thing. And I, I, I actually was a bit creeped out about it, actually, to be honest with you. And I wish I'd listened to that and not allowed him to get in. I would have saved myself an awful lot of pain and upset. This shaving stand with matching brush and razor was donated by a local visitor from Zagreb. Signs of wear and the greying bristles suggest daily use over many years. She bought me this shaving kit for a birthday. I haven't used it for quite some time, but I kept it as one of the few reminders I have of her. Our love was passionate and we tried to break up few times. She was 17 when we met. I was 27, married with three children. We split up after 10 years, but love remained as strong as ever, on my side at least. In the meantime, she got married and had a daughter. I hope she doesn't love me anymore. And I hope she doesn't know that she was the only person I have loved this much. A paper-bound edition of Proust's novel A la recherche du temps perdu. Condition poor, dog-eared, slightly foxed, grains of sand between the pages. It was a pink jumpsuit. Uh, <laughs> um, I think she was wearing that. I was at university. I can remember the first conversation really clearly, which took place in the very, very grotty, self-catering kitchen, mooling kind of chicken livers. <laughs> I know from subsequent conversations that I was considered completely pretentious. <laughs> there was a party. We both got quite drunk and we were sort of kissing each other. And so I remember sort of saying, you know, <laughs> are you sure about this? <clears throat> but it was made really clear that this was, this was sex and at the right moment to do it, we sort of jumped on each other. We went out for dinner, a little cheap French restaurant in Oxford, and there was a very special insight into emotion. Very funny, very witty, but a certainty about what a feeling was and how to put it into words. I was a clever boy, I was very confident, but I wasn't really in touch with my heart. I remember having that dinner and that conversation and falling in love. 
I had an old pound note, which was ancient. And he said, oh, look at this old pound note. I said, yes. He said, would you like to have it? Because I had to. He said, yeah, have it. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this. He pulled out this Jamaican dollar bill and gave it to me. And it was wonderful to have someone who doted on me, cooked for me, sat and watched telly with me, with his arm around me. It was those moments of just ordinariness that for me was so precious. It's, like, it's an island, so you have to take a little boat and it's five miles of sand and Atlantic breakers crashing. Initially, the beach is very crowded, but the further you walk, the more desolate it becomes. There's just you and the person that you love and the sand and the sea. We'd make a little shack out of bits of bamboo and sarongs. We'd have a picnic, we'd bathe and, and then we'd lie in the sun. And probably the first summer we went, I was reading Proust, Remembrance of Things Past. And I started to read passages of it aloud. The combination of sun, sea, naked bodies, ravishing prose would make you very interested in each other. There was thwarted desperation about his experience of love. It was like Proust was in a ménage à trois with us, and where we could fulfil ourselves, he couldn't. This room of the museum is devoted to erotic objects. That's the beaded curtain at the entrance, and Jarlson showing me around. It's funny, my girl, my daughter loves this room the most because most of the things are pink. <laughs> a pair of artificial breasts, sculpted in a naive, primitive style. Silicon, overpainted in salmon tones to simulate flesh, and mounted on a distressed fabric backing. Manufactured in Belgrade in 2009. Artist's model unknown. Size 36. F. After three years together, my husband brought fake sculptured female breasts, which were, of course, larger than mine, and that was the time of our biggest relationship crisis. He made me wear them during sex because they turned him on. I was disappointed because of those sculptured fake breasts. I left him for good. I love the fact you have a sign on this particular object <laughs> saying thank you for not touching the exhibits. I mean, it's so natural that everybody would want to squeeze them. You know, they so. do look very squeezable, it has yeah. to be said. <laughs> it sounds like a really bizarre and kind of nerdy thing to do, but it, it was a bit of a drug and we got hooked on it and had a ritual of frequently going to this place, finding this idyll. We actually had the time to get through most of the novel over the course of a relationship that lasted for more than two and a half decades. 
visitors to the museum often have very emotional responses to its stories, particularly if they're nursing broken hearts of their own. Nina, the gift shop girl, hands out sympathy, along with the souvenirs. She's a good listener, in her 20s, and a little wistful. One of the objects in the museum is hers, but she'd rather not say which. She shows me the visitor's book. It's full of handwritten notes in different languages. Page after page of tiny love letters. This is the first. Life has taken me on so many exciting adventures. Here I am in Croatia. Who would have ever predicted? Not I. And somehow, through all the cities, all the towns, all the countries, all the new streets, every day is the same, full of you. There is one thought that keeps me sane. <laughs> you would hate it here. And still here you are. I miss you every day. Alexis. That's so sad. So sad. Yeah, just, yeah, just was... Yeah, if you just found it, you were flicking yeah. through. Yeah. So, so there is lots of things like that. This tiny object was given to the museum by a German donor. It's a light for a dog's collar, moulded in dark red plastic with a blinking light. We'd been married for 13 years and were living in a foreign country together. The love in our relationship had taken a backseat to friendship and I come to realise I was miserable. Telling her I was leaving was the hardest thing I'd ever had to do. She went back to her own country to stay with her family and try to get her strength back. I went home and discovered I was suffering from depression. We maintained a level of contact, though she was having great difficulty coming to terms with our new reality. She sent me a package with a few small things in it, each of which broke my heart a little more because they were mostly about her wanting to take care of me, even though she was the one suffering. She said she bought one of these dog collars lights for our little dog, because she kept wandering off in the dark on winter nights and getting lost. This way, they could always find her. This little red light has been with me everywhere in my shower kit for two years now, killing me every time I see it. My former partner took her own life just over a year after we split up. Alone in a hotel room in a strange town. P.S. Please hang it blinking if you use it. It reminds me of a heartbeat. The battery can be replaced. That was an excerpt from The Cabinet of Animosities, produced by Kathy Fitzgerald and Matt Thompson for the BBC World Service. So, Kathy, now what I want to know is what would you leave in the museum? Um, I actually, when I was wandering around, the thing I would have put in, there's a poem by Emily Dickinson called Hope is a Thing with Feathers. Feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And I, I have this really vivid memory when I was trying to get over somebody of thinking about this poem which sort of basically says hope is like a little bird living inside you and, it, and I used to imagine this little bird being a bit like Tweety Pie and I would try and hit it over the head with a tennis racket <laughs> because it seems to me that you know when you're splitting up with someone hope is the very last thing you need hope is hope is a disaster exactly yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your style of delivery because it's so unique and it just seems to be another tool that works for you in the stories that you produce um, well, I think actually it's largely to do with the fact I have a very small set of pipes. Um, so I actually, I don't have a big voice, I have quite a small voice. 
and yeah and I suppose I've just discovered this world where it's okay because the microphone will capture the small voice in all its nuance. I think I really like that. I like the intimacy of that. Do you think that the other experiences you had, are they funneled into your work in some way? They almost certainly are, but I'd actually say what was probably more important was just 20 years of wrong turns and uncertainties and not being quite myself. It was actually quite useful to wander fairly lost for 10 or 20 years, because if I'd started making programmes straight out of university, I'd never, ever, ever have had the confidence to make the programmes I'm making now. Producer Kathy Fitzgerald talking about her work that we featured today on ReSound. To hear all of the pieces from today's show in full, or to listen to more stories from Kathy and her new production company, White Stiletto, visit her website, kathyfitzgerald.co.uk. And that's Kathy with a C. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound is also provided by Atlas Brewing Company. The Atlas Brew Pub and 710 Lounge Bowling Alley are open seven nights a week, located on Lincoln near Diversity. More information at atlasbeercompany.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.